conclusion of our time in the book of Acts. And this has been a, a blessing to me to, to walk through this with you. I pray uh, that it's been a blessing for you uh, to walk through it with us as we've uh, preached sermon after sermon uh, in this book. And, and as we turn our focus to the last chapter of this, of this uh, book, what we, you know, when you're, when you're in class, if you, if you take a class, whether it be a collegiate class or otherwise, what you often find is that there is a, um, there's a sense in which you, you, at the end you get this summary of sorts and a recap. And, and whether it was intentional or not, it, 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 it appears that chapter 8 is offering us a, a closing summary of many of the lessons that we've learned as we've walked through this book. Um, for example, we've learned to expect that when we follow God and walk in accordance to his will, God walks with us. And, 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 and Acts has taught us what to expect. We've, we've learned that the spread of the gospel has created a family united all around the world through life, death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We've learned that we must never cease sharing the gospel whether we are embraced or whether we are opposed. We've learned that this book represents only the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of the church's story, and so we turn to the end of this book, and as we turn, rather, to the end of this book, let us be reminded that the end of this book is the end of the beginning of God's work through his church. So for the, very, for the first point of what, what Acts has taught us that I want to key in on, let's talk a little bit about the fact that Acts has taught us what to expect when we walk in accordance to the will of God. As we've been discussing in the last few chapters, uh, uh, Corey's, Corey obviously preached a a wonderful sermon through uh, Acts chapter 27 last week. Paul is making his journey to Rome, and he has testified to Paul, and, he, uh, and, and God has testified to Paul, and God has impressed upon Paul this commandment to go to Rome. And he's impressed upon Paul this commitment that as he goes, he's going to go with him. He's going to ensure that he gets exactly where he has called him to be. And Paul is moving based on God's certain will and God's certain promises to him to go to Rome and I'll be with you while you go. And as a result, no matter how many obstacles we've seen stand in the way of getting or, or, or stand in the way of Paul and Rome, none of them can keep him from getting where God has called him to be. Acts 28 is, is yet again another reminder of this truth. We, when we are in God's will, we have God's support to get wherever he has appointed us according to his will to be. God's provision, first and foremost, follows God's will. Verse 1, it says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Paul, after being safely brought through the storm as God promised he would be, with all the lives spared that were alone or on the ship with him, they arrive on this island. And islanders aren't typically known for their hospitality in this particular day towards random foreigners that show up. 
But here under these circumstances, with God's hand being upon this group because of his desire to get Paul exactly where he desires for him to be, they are met with great hospitality and unusual kindness and provision. See, oftentimes we reject the clear commandments of God because we worry about how we're going to be taken care of. We reject any and all risk, even those, even, even those that we know to be within God's will. Because the pathway to provision for us isn't crystal clear. But as I read this story and, and, and I see God's hand providing for Paul over and over again, as Paul remains committed to obey his will, I'm reminded of Jesus' words. Those words in the Holy Scripture in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. One of the more difficult things to do in the life of faith is to have greater confidence in God's will than our security. To rest in the promise that if we seek him rightly, he will provide sufficiently. But time and time again, even when things appear shaky, we still see the Lord providing sufficiently for Paul all the way to Rome. But not only does God's provision follow God's will, God's protection follows God's will. Verse 3, we hear Paul Bundle or gathering a bundle of sticks. It says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, it's worth our time to just pause and take note of the fact that here is arguably the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of the earth handling the meager duties of gathering sticks for the group's fire. See, he's God's servant, but yet he is a servant still. Paul's calling doesn't elevate him to a place where he feels he's too good for these minimal tasks. The more we embrace our call to serve the Lord, in fact, the more humble and grounded we should become. The servant of God who only accepts tasks of significance and recognition undermines his calling to serve and his identity as servant. William Barclay once, was once quoted as saying that it is only the little man that refuses the little task. However, in the midst of this display of humility, a trial arises. A snake jumps out of the fire, bites Paul, fastens on Paul, poisons the snake, obviously, because the locals are immediately mortified by what just happened. And they say, well... Justice, who actually is a god and not, and not, not the, the ideal of justice in this particular text. But they say justice didn't get him on the boat. Got him here, though. Must be because of what he's done. It's a terrible guy, apparently, because he, tried, he, he got away from the boat. And he still ends up getting bit by a snake. So it must be because he's a terrible person. And then, of course, God's protection shows up. And when God's protection shows up, Paul immediately shakes the snake off of his hand, unharmed, unscathed. And they wait, they look, they wait, and they say, okay, maybe, maybe something, maybe it's going to take a minute. Nothing, nothing happens, no swelling, no, nobody's falling down dead. And then after they waited a long time, it says, and no misfortune came to Paul, 
says they changed their minds. I love that. I love that. They changed their minds. Oh, you know, first it was like, oh, this guy's such a terrible guy. Immediately it's like, oh, maybe he's not that bad, right? I mean, snake, snake bit him, nothing's happened. And so they go from saying this guy, this, you know, this guy is a terrible guy to worshiping this guy. Now, this is it's interesting because as you, as, if we talk about this being more of a summary, when we, when we go back to Acts, there was a moment in time where Paul and Apollos were healing people in a city, and the people worshipped them, right? They were, and they were saying, no, 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 don't worship us. Don't worship us. But by the end of the story, they go from worshipping them to cursing them and beating them. So, so this is actually the same story in reverse, Right? We, we, find, we, we find them saying, okay, this snake bit Paul, so he must be a terrible guy. Oh, wait a minute. Snake didn't, you know, didn't harm him, so he must, be, he must be a god. Here's my point. You can't always follow the words and the sways of those who don't know your Savior. If you follow the words and the sway of those who don't know your Savior, they'll have you thinking, they'll have you thinking God's curse is upon you when God's comfort is upon you. And they'll have you thinking that God's comfort is upon you when God's curse is. They'll have you thinking that it's God's blessing when it's God's humiliation and God's judgment. And they'll have you thinking that it's God's judgment when it's God's blessing. They'll have you turned upside down if you're following the course of the world. So you have to be sensitive. To God's voice and, of course, to his word. You have to be sensitive to the voice that speaks from his church. You have to be sensitive to God and not just simply the echoes that come from those that speak on behalf of God who don't know God. But there is provision when you follow God's will. There is protection when you follow God's will. But there is also this beautiful privilege to participate in God's plan when we follow God's will. After God shows up through Paul being unharmed by the serpent's bite, he and his team are invited over to the chief man of the island's house, Publius. So we see God's provision again on display with this unusual hospitality continuing. Now, at first it was the islanders who were providing hospitality. Now it's the chief, it's the big man of the island providing hospitality, entertaining them, the scripture says, for three straight days. But in the midst of this entertainment, there arises an opportunity for God to show his hand and to show his hand through Paul. We read that this, this man's father lay sick with fever at the century. The century is a, is a bacterial infection of the intestines. It's almost like those type of infections that you get in warm waters on the coast. So here's this, here's this, here's this man who, is, who, is, who has this father who is, who is ill. And, and as a result of this father being ill, Paul has an opportunity to participate in God's plan as he is following God's will, moving in accordance to God's will. He reaches out and he heals this man. Paul is showing us that when we avail ourselves to God's will, he invites us to participate in the execution of his plans in the earth and its people. 
See, oftentimes we desire to be used by God. Many of us desire to be used by God, but too many times we want his use of us to come on our own terms. See, many of us desire to be used by God, but we don't want to follow God. We just want to be used by God. We want to be used by God in accordance to our own agenda. We want to be used by God in accordance to our own will. We want to be used by God in accordance to our own program and our own self-imposed restrictions on what God can call us to and what God can't call us to. But if we desire to truly be used by God, if we desire to truly participate in God's plan, we have to follow God's will. In order to be used by God, we must make ourselves available to God on his terms, not our terms. And based on his agenda, not our agenda, and based on his program and not our program. Let me ask you a question. In what ways have you allowed your agenda and your program and your ambition and your reluctance towards God's will to restrict you from participating in God's work in the world? In what ways have you hamstrung your participation in God's work? by your resistance to obey him. Maybe it's your disregard for his commandments. Maybe it's your reluctance to submit your calendar to him. Maybe it's your reluctance to submit your wallet to him. Maybe it's your reluctance to submit some of your personal ambitions, some of your goals to him. Maybe it's your reluctance to submit your doubts and your fears to him. See, when we pull back from God's will in our everyday lives, it's ultimately our lost opportunity to join him in what he is doing in the world, to join him in what he is doing in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in our churches and in our cities. Paul's commitment to God's word and God's will puts him in position to participate in God's work. So here it is. We can take confidence as we read through Paul's account and we can take confidence um, as we read through all the other accounts in Acts. That we, find, uh, that we find all the other accounts that we find over and over again in Acts, that when we are walking in the will of God, nothing will stop us from getting where he wants us to be with everything we need to get there. As one theologian puts it, God's work done God's way never lacks God's resources. God's work done God's way never lacks God's resources. But there's another lesson that we learn as we read through Acts. There, the lesson, the Acts is also teaching us that because of the spread of the gospel through Christ, we now have family all around the world. As we have walked through this book, recording all the works that the Spirit of Christ has wrought through the apostles, they have all resulted in the spread of the church throughout the world. It started, of course, in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit arrives. Thousands are saved. They began to spread out into the other nations because they came from other nations on that day. It continues on uh, throughout the book as those that are in Jerusalem are persecuted and then they begin to scatter into the world. It continues on as you reach chapter 13 and the church at Antioch sends out Paul, Barnabas. They begin their first missionary journey. Paul takes three three total before he goes back to Jerusalem and then we find him on this fourth journey heading back to Rome. But as a result of all of this movement of the church, the gospel is being spread throughout the world and people are getting saved. Family is being built. 
And we see it again in chapter 28 as Paul makes his final trek from the shipwreck in Malta to Rome, beginning in verse 11. Talks about him, for three months they set sail in a ship that had wintered, I'm sorry, after three months, they set sail in a ship that had wintered in a ship, uh, a winter in the island. And then they are put in at Syracuse, where they stayed for three days. Then they make a circuit and arrive at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. So they continue on, they, and they reach this city, and then they are found, they find brothers. Listen to this, verse 14. There we found brothers, and we're invited to stay with them for seven days. Brothers we found. Not brothers that they had a hand in reaching or had a hand in sharing the gospel with, but the gospel has spread in such a way that now they can go to cities that they have not touched yet and find family. According to a theolo- a one theologian, what amounts to what, what should have been a five-week trip if taken straight from, uh, from where they left to where they were going, obviously Rome, it should have been about a five-week trip in duration. But all of the other things have happened, resulting in a four-plus-month long trip. However, what's interesting is not just the hospitality they get from the islanders, but it's the hospitality that they get from new Christian families that they encounter as a result of the spread of the gospel that they had a hand in. These brothers in this city weren't people that they were well acquainted with necessarily, and yet they are called brothers. Why? Because of the common blood that they have with Jesus. The common blood of Jesus that they share that that purchased their salvation. See, God the Father through God the Son has become our parent and adopted us into a new eternal family. Paul writes about it in Romans 8. He says, for all who are led led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, as a result, a family bond has been forged with every saint around the world as a result of what Jesus Christ did. A gentleman that I spent a lot of time with last year by the name of Dehadi Lewis talks about this in his book called Among Wolves. He says this, Of all the word pictures and metaphors used to describe the church, one stands out above the rest, family. In fact, it is so much of the essence of the church that it cannot even properly be called a metaphor. Metaphor describes what the church is like or similar to. Light, flock, field, building. But family is not metaphorical. It is a literal description of the phenomena we know as church. The church is not like family. It is family. God is literally our father. Jesus is literally our elder brother, and we are literally brothers and sisters in Christ. Family is the primary way the early church identified themselves. This can be seen by the fact that the word disciple, so prevalent in the early part of the New Testament, disappears after the book of Acts. It is replaced by the term brother in the rest of the Bible. 
family dominates the self-understanding of the early church. Let me ask you a question. How do you embody this idea in your everyday life? How does this fundamental idea that the church is family transform the way that you relate to the people even in this room? How should it shape your sense of connection? How should it shape your sense of responsibility? How should it shape your sense of accountability? One way it should shape you is in your understanding of how you provide care for one another. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good for everyone. Let us do good to everyone, but especially those who are your family now. We see this in each city Paul visits where Christians live. They, they open their doors. They open their lives. They open their homes to Paul and all who are with him because that's what family does. See, we have a calling no matter where we are to support one another and to care for one another as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit in us testifies to that solidarity. There is nothing like going to a city that you are unfamiliar with and finding a shown up Christian there. You immediately connect. Why? Because you're family. You're family. And you look at verse 15, it says, and, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far from the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So this is Paul in Rome. And now that he's gotten to Rome, brothers that are south of Rome, 35, 40 miles away, which is a basically day to, to two-day journey, they hear about him being in Rome, and they, they go and they leave, and they go to visit and be with him. These aren't brothers that Paul knows. He hasn't been to Rome in his journey, in his missionary journeys. But they want to be with Paul. Why? Because they want to be present to encourage family in the midst of the struggle. The brothers in Rome heard about Paul and the others arriving and they make the two-day journey from, from their cities to meet them. What is, what is Paul's response, though? This is, what, this is what blesses my soul. What is Paul's response? On seeing them, he thanks God. And he took courage. He thanks God. On seeing what appears for all intents and purposes to be a group of strangers. But he sees them. He thanks God. And he takes courage. Why? Because these strangers are his family. See, there isn't a stronger, more mature, more dedicated, or more resolved Christian in all of this generation of saints than Paul. And yet, from the moment he saw them, he was strengthened and encouraged with the presence of Christian brothers visiting him in his time of need. And if Paul is served in this moment, with all of the strength and the boldness and the confidence that he has in Jesus, how much more so do you think you and I need it? See, don't buy the lie of this age and this culture that tells you that you are at your best when you are going at life alone. 
the Lord spoke the truth about us at our creation. It is not good that man should be alone. And the truth, that truth remains true today. We were created for fellowship. We were created for communion and community. We were created not independent. We were created interdependent. We were created to rely on God and rely on one another. We were built to lock arms with one another. We were built when given the opportunity to experience genuine love through bona fide community. We were built that way in such, we were built in such a way that when we experience it, that's when our souls flourish the most. So how are you cultivating that real need in your life today? What efforts are you taking to grow in Christian fellowship? And what efforts are you taking to receive the blessing that leads to thanksgiving and that leads to strengthening in your walk with God? Another important point to look at in this, in this verse is who's the one that's initiating it? Paul's the one in need, but who's the one initiating it? Not the one in need. The one, who, the one who knows the person in need. They say to themselves, he needs us in this hour. Let's go be with him. It's important for the church to be sensitive to one another, right? It's important. Now, and listen, listen, this isn't pastoral visits, all right? These, these people ain't pastors. This is the church. This is all the church. Being sensitive to one another, being responsible to one another, seeing the hurt, seeing the pain, and saying, hey, sisters, let's go be with her. Brothers, let's go be with him. And then when that person is at their best, them seeing the pain in another and saying, I'm going to go be with them. Not simply because they were with me, but because we're family. Are you inconveniencing yourself in order to encourage and strengthen the Christian, Christian brothers and sisters around you who need it? When was the last time? When was the last time you inconvenienced yourself for the strengthening and the encouragement of another brother or sister in the faith? Acts has taught us that true family that's bigger than any other, that, that the true family of God, rather, is bigger than any other family in the universe. And it, and it has taught us that we have the God-ordained responsibility to that true family to give and receive the strength and encourage, and to give and receive, rather, the strength and encouragement that true family provides. But also, Acts has taught us that we must share the gospel regardless of whether or not it's accepted or rejected. When we look at the text in, in, in verses 17 through 28, Paul is now in, in Rome. He gathers the Jewish officials there um, and, and he begins to share the gospel with them. It says, beginning in verse 18, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it has become, but since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, 
For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to, him, to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to the people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Folks, we must, we must share the gospel regardless of whether it's accepted or whether it's rejected. We must, come to the, we must come to the conclusion, we must establish the reality in our own hearts that some people will embrace the gospel, and some people will oppose the gospel. We must embrace the reality in our own heart that the gospel will be a sweet smelling aroma for some people and it will be a stench to others. Some will hear. Others will not. The fall of man makes sense to some. The fact that man is sinful and that man does need a savior. But the fall of man makes no sense to others. I don't need saving from anything. Jesus Christ being perfect and, and, and spilling his blood on our behalf, on a cross, on a rugged cross that we all deserve, will make sense to some. And for others, it will be repugnant. Christ raising from the grave, showing all power in his, in his hand to declare victory over sin and death will make sense to some. And it will be rejected by others. And the idea that this Savior sits at the right-hand side of his Father, making constant intercession for his people, bringing his people into his fold when it's all said and done, allowing them to enjoy eternal rest at his side, makes sense to some. But it will not make sense to others. But we must continue to preach it. We must never cease to preach it, no matter whether it's rejected or no matter whether it's accepted. So let me share something about City Light. We are not trying to be a megachurch, okay? We're absolutely not trying to be a megachurch. But that should not be an excuse for us to have complacency in how we make Jesus Christ known. See, what ends up happening a lot of times in churches is that we say, well, you know, people are going to reject the gospel. And what that becomes is that becomes cover for us in our sluggishness. That becomes cover for us in our laziness. That becomes cover for us in our cowardice to make the gospel known and to share the gospel. We say, well, I mean, you know, people aren't going to accept it. But notice that every single time, or, or, or rather, notice over and over again, Paul is rejected. And that does not stop him from sharing the gospel and making Jesus known. We don't, we don't care about being mega at City Life, but 
But we have big ambition as it relates to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to share it with as many people as, as we possibly can. We want to make the love of Jesus Christ. We want people to feel the love of Christ as many people as we possibly can reach within our grasp or within our reach. We want them to feel the love of Christ and to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will not let rejection be an excuse for us to see. The gospel te- or, or Acts teaches us that People will reject it, and yet you still must go, because there are also people that will accept it. And if in all of our preaching we win one sheep, then there's a celebration in heaven for the one. Lastly, the book of Acts teaches us that this is the beginning of the church's story, not the end. Looking at verse 30 through 31, you hear these words. He lived there two whole years of his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the end. That's it. That's the end of, that's the, end of the book. That's how it ends. And I mean, you know, for our, for our Netflix Amazon Prime sensibilities. This is just messing with us, right? It's like, what kind of ending is this, right? <laughs> what happens to Paul? What happens to him? I mean, you go somewhere, you get out of jail, or I mean, what happens? That's the way you're going to end it, Luke? This is, this is odd. On the surface, this is a strange ending to a non-fictional account. I mean, we, we want to see what happens to Paul. I mean, have you ever watched a very, very, very good television show? And, and it, it's, it's spanning seasons at this point, season one, season two, season three, season four. I remember a great show that came on CBS called The Unit. Me and my wife watched it all the time. It's a great show, great characters, great storylines. They're building something great. You know, it's like SEAL operations, the special ops unit. So they got family stuff. They got action stuff. So the wife likes it. They got the family dynamic. The action stuff, I like it. We're lined up every day at the TV or every week at the TV to watch this show. We're recording it, DVRing it, because that was before you streamed it. So we're DVRing it. Then, the, then there was like a cliffhanger at the, at the end of this, this season. It's like, man, what's going to happen next season? Nothing. It got canceled. It's like. And every once in a while, we still, we still talk about that. Can you believe that you got canceled? It's such a great show. How could it get canceled? So there's a frustration with stories not ending the way we think they ought to end. And so when you read this story, you're like, isn't this supposed to end another way? Aren't we supposed to find out what happens to Paul? Paul is a prisoner. He's receiving great treatment, it appears. He has a rented house. People are there allowing visitors, and people are coming over and over and over. Again, he's sharing the gospel with them. We know that Paul writes four letters that they call the prison letters during this time. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. In Luke's last words about Paul's work, he, he says that it was done with all boldness and without hindrance. 
happens to Paul? Because this isn't the end for Paul. We know it's not the end. So what happens? Maybe it feels like Paul's story because we've been following him through the book for so long. But it is only his story as far as God is using him to make his name known in the earth. See, the reason it doesn't tell you what happens to Paul because it's not Paul's story. It's God's story. Sinclair Ferguson, pastor, once said that God buries his workmen, but he continues his work. He buries his workmen, but he continues his work. The story includes us, no matter how big or small our contribution may be, but the story is never about us, no matter how big or small our contribution may be. It is a story and has always been a story about God. It is a story about Jesus and what he is doing in his church. Paul was a vessel, but he was one vessel. So maybe the reason we have such an abrupt ending is because it's not an ending at all. Maybe the reason we have such an abrupt ending is because it's not an ending, it's a call. A call to all that are reading to continue the work. A call that, to all that are studying it to continue the work. The work that began in the apostles and was handed to us with spirit-empowered boldness and without hindrance. So how should you read these last two verses? How should you read this text? We should read it as a handoff. You shouldn't read it as a conclusion. You should read it as a handoff. A handoff to you. A handoff to me. To continue the work that began in these great men and women. To continue the work of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. To continue the work of performing the works of Jesus Christ with his love. To continue the work of advancing the kingdom of God with his power. To continue the unstoppable work. Not because the characters are unstoppable. But the author, rather, who has written the characters in his story is unstoppable. 